you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Job chapter 38. We're going to look at just a couple of verses there, and then in chapter 39. The story is told once of uh, the great English writer H.G. Wells, who visited the home of Henry James, who was an American novelist. And as they talked in the drawing room filled with all kinds of artifacts, Wells noted a very large stuffed bird over in the corner. And so he asked uh, James, uh, what is that? And James replied, that is a stork. Huh, snorted Wells. That ain't my idea of a stork. He said, well, it was apparently God's idea. That is a lesson that Job needed to learn. And God is teaching him that lesson. Whatever Job's ideas were about the running of the universe and of his life, all that mattered was what God thought. Uh, God is God, and Job was not. And that is a lesson that all of us need to fix firmly in our minds. It is a lesson that our culture has largely forgotten and now uh, angrily denounces the idea that God is God, that he is sovereign. God is free in his sovereignty to act however he pleases. Because God is infinitely wise and infinitely good, he does everything perfectly, whatever Job or men may think. Job had been accusing God of mismanagement in his life. And he's called on that first by the young man Elihu and now by God. And God is giving Job and us a crash course in divine sovereignty. God reviews the animal kingdom and he examines the peculiarities and eccentricities of much of the animal kingdom, driving home the truth that it was his idea to create each animal as he had. And all that God does, he does with perfect genius and with perfect brilliance. Job needed to realize that and to rest in that truth. And so in order to get his point across, God asked Job a number of questions about the created order and about his providential care of the animal kingdom. And his power over all of these animals demonstrates his sovereignty over all. God's questions focus, focus upon ten animals. There are six beasts and four birds. And the questions were designed to demonstrate God's greatness and Job's smallness. And this would be a turning point for Job. The point that God is making is that he is sovereign. Therefore, he is capable of governing Job's life and his circumstances. God is sovereign, and he is capable of governing our lives and our circumstances. God created all. He sustains all, and he governs all with absolute precision, whether we think it or not, whether it's our idea of perfect governance doesn't matter. All that matters is what God thinks and what God does. So God uses a number of contrasts to point out 
his sovereignty over the animal kingdom, over his creation. The first contrast he talks about in verses uh, uh, 39 through 41 at the end of chapter 38 is about suffering and survival. Uh, Picture, if you will, uh, a documentary, perhaps, on, uh, on parts of Africa. And first there's a shot of lion cubs, and they're very small and sweet and soft and beautiful and even even cuddly, but they are hungry. And if they are not fed soon, they will die. So next picture a shot of young ravens calling out for food. And if they are not fed, they too will die. Our hearts go out to these defenseless little creatures. And then the next scene is a picture of a family of antelope, young and old, uh, grazing happily together. We admire their beauty and their grace. And suddenly the picture is shattered as the lioness burst into the middle of the antelope. She runs one down and she rips it apart. And there's blood and flesh everywhere. She tears it apart with ruthless power. And the final shots show the lion clubs satisfied with plenty of meat. And afterward, the ravens, who are like vultures and eat carrion, they feast upon what remains. It is hard to feel either unqualified pleasure or unalloyed distaste. There is a tension that cannot be reconciled in a world of food chains. There is predator and there is prey. If the beauty of the antelope is to remain unspoiled, then the beauty of the lions and the helplessness of the raven chicks will end in starvation and death. The survival of the one comes at the cost of the other. In our present world, if the lion were to lie down with the lamb, there would be a lot of starving lion cubs. We live in a world in which uh, predation and starvation are the only alternatives. We may be shocked at this picture of the young antelope torn apart, but God says by implication to Job that he is the one who hunts the prey for the lion. He satisfies the appetite of the lion cubs. He is the one who provides for the ravens the prey they need to live. Verse 40 and 41. Psalm 147 says the same thing. God gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Indeed, when the antelope is torn limb from limb, that is an answered prayer for the young ravens. Verse 41 says they cry to God for help. Psalm 104 again echoes this. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. Is it possible that in the counsel of God, this age is so ordered that suffering for some is necessary for survival for others? Uh, And it points to a deeper truth, a truth about redemptive suffering, that the day will come when one innocent man will suffer, and that that is the way that God will redeem humanity. So we have this 
contrast. The second is the contrast between time and existence. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 39. God invites Job to think about a particular time, a significant time, a time when life begins. He is asked, when does the shy, elusive mountain goat give birth? Number the months of her pregnancy. Do you know the time when she gives birth? Uh, That is a time beyond Job's knowledge, a time of waiting and a crisis of pain that brings forth joy and new life. What is more, this new life will grow to independence out in the open, out in the wild, uh, and will soon leave the mother's care to be cared for by God's generous hand, according to verse 4. The God who brings the time of trouble also brings the time of birth and life. The writer of Ecclesiastes said to every thing there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven there is a time to be born and there is a time to die one of the things that job has been most concerned about is what he perceives as god's mishandling of times he says in chapter 7 that human beings are given days like the days of a hired hand months of emptiness and nights of misery Indeed, he said in chapter 7, every morning, every moment, God watches and visits misery upon him. The set time that Job longs for in chapter 14 never seems to come. And Job's anguished cry is, if only God were the righteous Lord of time. And in reply, God says that he is. He is the one who knows not only with head knowledge, but with personal caring oversight when the mountain goat gives birth. He observes the calving, not with the dispassionate eye of a mere observer, a student, but watching and caring in love as she calves. It is God who has numbered the months of pregnancy, not merely counting, but loving and watching. These Shy, elusive creatures of the mountains are objects of God's care and of his affection. Their times are in his hands. You know, you know the, the big problem with time? It's waiting. Uh, as every human mother who has been granted a safe birth knows, that time uh, can seem very, very long. There's a time of conception. There's a time of gestation. There's a time of labor pains in the pregnancy. But the end, there's life. And there is joy. Uh, If that is true for mountain goats, how much more is it true for human beings uh, struggling to remain believers? If Job doesn't know the regular times in the natural cycle of things, he can scarcely appreciate the implications of proposing a time out of time when a mortal would return to life to vindicate the human race. And yet the time comes after months and years and centuries and millennia and years of hatred and evil and apparently the complete victory of evil. And then in one glorious morning of new life, Jesus Christ rises from the dead. 
That is the time that was in and is in God's hands. And we need to learn to entrust the time to God and the times of our life. Our times are in His hands. The next contrast that God uses, verses 5 through 8, is that of freedom and provision. Here's a wild donkey, been set free. His bonds have been loosed. He runs free and swift. And he lives in the uh, arid plain, the salt land, perhaps the land south of the Dead Sea that goes to the Gulf of Aqaba. And Job is to picture him mocking his poor domesticated relations who are in the hubbub of the city being whipped and told what to do and where to go by their human masters. He ranges the mountains, God says, looking for food, every green thing. And yet the point that God is making is that this freedom that the wild donkey enjoys is a gift of God. It is God who lets the wild donkey go free. It is God who has loosed his bonds. It is God who has given him the dry, salty land as his dwelling place. He is free and wild. He lives in a deeply inhospitable place, a place of death rather than life. And yet his choice, his freedom, and his survival do not in any way compromise the absolute providential control of God over all of life. Rather, they express the wild wonder of God's providence right out at the margins of life. There is not one inch of the strange wildness of this world that lies outside the counsel of God. That is the point that God is making for Job and for us. There is a contrast in verses 9 through 12 of power and danger. The wild ox, this was a uh, fearsome creature. Some bulls were over six feet across the shoulders. The wild ox is a legendary terror of the near Middle East. In Psalm 22, David puts being rescued from the horns of the wild oxen alongside being saved from the mouth of the lion. When Balaam needs to speak forcefully, forcefully about how God fights for Israel, he says that God is for them like the horns of a wild ox. So here is an irony in this description. Basically, God says, look, look here, Job, you're a farmer, right? Go out to the wild ox, to this massive creature, and become an ox whisperer, you know, pat him on the head, and lead him to your manger, and see if he'll eat from there. And then, I'll tell you what you do, Job, Put a yoke on him and plow with him and harrow the field, thresh out the grain. If you are so knowledgeable and you have such power and such wisdom, see what happens. Job was no fool. No farmer in their right mind would try to do that. Yes, the power of the ox would be great if the farmer could tame it, but he cannot. And the implication here is very clear. There is some wild stuff in the world beyond man's control, and it is deeply dangerous. And the implication is only God controls it. Only God has power over the wild ox. In order to, in order to domesticate this creature, it's going to take a power and a knowledge 
that is far beyond Job's. And by implication, that counsel lies with God alone. Job is to bow before the wisdom that can take the power of the wild ox and subdue it to his own purpose. Here is a wisdom that ultimately will use death to defeat the one who had the power of death. In the plan of salvation, God destroys death with death. Only God has the power to do that. And then in verses 13 through 18, there is strangeness and paradox. The fifth picture is really kind of the odd one out. He describes the ostrich, and mostly in a negative way. Uh, the strangeness of the ostrich is perhaps not so out of place in a catalog of strange and wild creatures. Rather, it takes its strangeness to a new level. And there's some humor here as well, I think. The ostrich uh, gives birth to her young and then pretty much forgets where the eggs are, forgetting that an ox or a lion or a donkey or a mountain goat might step on them. Uh, she has gone through the pregnancy and through the labor, the laying of the eggs, but she doesn't seem to care if her labor is in vain. Indeed, verse 17 says she is a very stupid creature. Uh, the reason she is stupid is that God has made her forget wisdom. She lacks an intellect. She is not endowed with wisdom, which means she could run for political law. No. Uh, she has chosen not to give, or God has chosen not to give her her expected measure of wisdom and of common sense. So here's a creature that God has made without intelligence. And yet here's the surprising punchline. When an ostrich decides to run, the horse and the rider can't keep up with it. An ostrich can run at about 45 miles an hour over a prolonged period of time. So God has made this strange creature without any intelligence, but given to it a burst of speed. Great speed along with a comical lack of sense. I'm not sure exactly the precise point that Job is to learn here, except that the universe can be unintelligible, strange, paradoxical. Why did God create the ostrich that way? Well, I don't know. Neither did Job. That was the point. But it is God who has done it. If there is a strange paradox with the ostrich, how much more ought Job to admit that there may be stranger and more paradoxical matters in the government of the world. Why? Why do things happen? Why? You, I mean, you read the Bible. You read the Bible sometimes and go, huh? What? You know, we were talking with someone this morning about the, the Hagar and Sarah, and Sarah goes to Abraham, you know, after she had given Hagar to him uh, to have a child, and she says, send her, send her away. Send her away. Send her kid away, too. And Abraham is loath to do that. He doesn't want to. And then God says, listen to Sarah. 
Send her away? What? Excuse me? Strangeness. Paradox. Does God run this world perfectly or not? We look at things and think, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But are we? I'm sure that God is sovereign. I'm sure that God does everything perfectly. And whether I understand it or not, or whether or not God makes it clear in the end or not, I rest in the assurance that He does no wrong, that everything that He does is right and perfect and good. Do you? That is the lesson Job needed to learn. That is the lesson we need to learn. The last picture is a picture of might and of majesty. The horse. We have no conception of what a terrifying creature a horse was 3,500 years ago. I mean, picture yourself on a battlefield and you've got a sword sword, excuse me, or you have a, a javelin, and you're, let's say you're an average man, average height and weight, or let's say you're like me, you're, you're under tall, I, I figured out the other day I went to the doctor for a physical, and I should be six foot six, I can't help that, for my weight, I've got, I've got to be six six, you know, so I'm not overweight, under tall, but anyway, uh, hey, don't laugh, Jesus said nobody by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature. Nothing I can do about it. But you're out on the battlefield and you've got a sword or a javelin and coming straight at you, snorting and frothing and mane flowing, is a 1,400-pound animal. For many, many years, the horse was the nuclear weapon of war. And those who had cavalry, either mounted cavalry or chariots, won the day. Because the horse was a terrifying animal. He is majestic, a word most often associated with God. He is terrifying, a word again associated with God in his wrath. Here is a dangerous, dark, godlike creature who has no fear. The battle is about to be joined and he paws the ground. He cannot wait to charge into battle. Uh... Here is, like the wild ox, a creature that is a great threat to Job, who symbolizes death and destruction. It is most probable that the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who first took all that Job had back there in chapter 1 were mounted on horses, came to, the, to devastate Job's life. And yet this war horse has a master. There is one to whom it owes its strength and its nature, and its victories, and the one to whom it must give an account ultimately, and that is to a sovereign God. Job cannot hope to overcome this ultimate weapon of war. He must bow and entrust himself to the God who is in control. So in our final picture, we turn back to the food chain, to predators and prey. Here we have a hawk or an eagle, and yet rather than showing the majestic flight of the birds, we're told about how they gather their food. The hawk or the eagle with such 
perfect eyesight spies a field mouse or a squirrel from way up above and soars down upon it and takes it back to its nest and tears it apart for the young to eat. Now it's interesting here, the parity, the, the poetry spares us no detail. It's not disinfected. God, God doesn't say to Job, uh, the hawk or the eagle gives the food to its young and they eat dinner. Notice what it says, verse 30. They suck up blood. It is the place where the slain are. In case we were in danger of forgetting, it is by understanding, including a plan and a purpose of God, that all of this happens. We're told that it is by God's command, not by Job's. God does not just permit predators to kill their prey. He commands them to do it, we're told. It is all in the sovereign purpose of God. So verse 30 is a shocking end to the seven animal and bird cameos. We watch young eagles around a dead body, blood dripping from their lips, and it's all at God's command, who is absolutely sovereign. The Lord's defense of his counsel is not like so many Christian celebrations of all the wonders of creation. Probably not many of us get a calendar at the first of the year with a scene of a, of a lion ripping apart an antelope or of an eagle blood dripping off of its beak and its talons covered in blood and flesh. We, we don't do that. We have a majestic scene of glaciers and mountains and pretty trees, you know. Uh, there's no violence. There's no death. But the Lord gives to Job and to us a brutal, in-your-face portrait of death and danger, as well as birth and life. There is in the universe a great deal of death and violence, predation, both among animals and humans, danger and terror. And God says, in effect, you know that, Job. You know that all of this is inextricably entwined in the world. You can't take out the death and just leave life. For without, without death, there'd be no life. Any plan, any government of this world in which good is ultimately to triumph must necessarily have a plan to overcome evil with good. Job could not expect, and we cannot expect, a shallow, trite, banal, simple solution to the problem of evil. The ways of God are inscrutable. and We must not challenge His counsel with any arrogant claim of perfect knowledge. We would never, ever, in our wildest dreams, have come up with the gospel. We would never have come up with the idea that God should become a man and come to earth and live a perfect life and be treated as a fool and die on a cross that our sins might be forgiven and that we might have redemption. Eternal life comes from that one death. For Christ died for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day. 
And out of death, God brings an escape from death and destroys him who had the power of death. Just a moment, we're going to stand and have a word of prayer. We're going to